what is up listeners and welcome to the second installment of fighting for survival the podcast meant to educate the masses on the proud storied heritage of african-american history that's typically underappreciated in traditional history courses my name is randy bonholm and i will be your host last week we had the opportunity to go over the charismatic fred hampton a true pioneer in civil rights the episode was well received and got a lot of love from you listeners I appreciate all the feedback and comments. They are pivotal in helping me make this podcast cater to your ears as much as possible. For today's episode, we will be journeying to the other side of the world, to the beautiful island of Japan, where, nearly 500 years ago, stood a mysterious African warrior casting watch over this great island. For this episode, we will reflect and discuss the life and impact of Yasuke, Japan's first non-Japanese samurai. Making his mark on history, he is a true testament that though now your situation seems bleak, you are in complete control of your destiny. Don't let outside factors keep you from reaching your greatness. Be sure to listen in and turn up the volume. For this next part of the podcast, I want you to close your eyes and fully capture this story. The year is 1582. All throughout the 15th and 16th centuries, nothing but conflict resided in feudal Japan. Military warlords constantly clashing in an effort to gain more power and territories. After years of war, unity is temporarily restored through the efforts of Oda Nobunaga. Oda became the most powerful daimyo. Daimyo, in short, are powerful territorial lords during the pre-modern Japan era. He ushered in a period of prosperity, establishing a cultural renaissance for art called the Momoyama Historical Art Period. A brutal but respected leader, Oda Nobunaga brought fear to his rivals and no one dare cross them or his territories. His rivals, the Mori clan, the Oisugi clan, and the Hojo clan were each dealing with family affairs and other internalized conflicts. As a result, each clan were vulnerable in their own respected sense. Recognizing this is the perfect time to attack and expand his empire, Oda sent his generals in all directions to overthrow each of his rival's kingdom. Commanding General Ashiba Hideyoshi to attack the Mori clan, General Takigawa Kazumatsu to watch the Hojo clan, and General Shibata Katsui to invade the home of the Uisugi clan. Oda began to rest. Hours later, Oda received an urgent request from Hashiba Hideyoshi, looking for backup. His troops were being pushed back by the Mori clan. Oda quickly gathered himself and made the preparations for Akichi Metsuhide to aid Hideyoshi and his troops. After getting the order from Oda, Mitsuhide ignored the order. In an instant, Mitsuhide's demeanor changed. He saw his new fate. He saw his destiny, his true calling. All the other generals were far from Kyoto, fighting in other parts of the country. This would be the only opportunity he would ever have to end Oda Nobunaga's reign and seize power as a new daimyo. General Mitsuhide and his army headed toward Kyoto. The citizens of Kyoto were very casual about the troops entering their city. It was assumed this is a routine march through the city ordered by Oda Nobunaga, as done many times before previously, so no red flags were raised when the troops marched on. Close to Oda's temple, Mitsuhide roared to his troops. The enemy awaits at Honoji. The army of over 13,000 cheered in unity, a cheer that was heard all around Kyoto. Shortly before sunrise, Akichi Mitsuhide and his troops encircle and lay siege on Oda Nobunaga's temple. The coup d'etat begins. Akichi Mitsuhide's rebellion against Oda Nobunaga. The Akichi army rushed the temple. Oda's servants and bodyguards fought back against the rebellion, feeling compelled to protect the daimyo and secure the castle, despite not knowing any true form of self-defense. Oda's personal bodyguard appears. 
an African samurai by the name of Yasuke. Yasuke is helping in the fight to gain back control of Oda's temple, fighting with determination, motivated and exerting his muscles to the absolute point of exhaustion. He felt he had a debt to pay by protecting Oda, the man who saw him as family and not a second-class citizen as he was so used to before. A debt he aimed to pay back, even if it meant death. The servants and bodyguards fought with vigor, but eventually the overwhelming numbers of Akichi's troops crushed their hopes. Oda Nobunaga recognized which way the scale of fate was tipping and decided to take matters into his own hands. He made up his mind to commit seppuku, a ritual to preserve his code of honor as a samurai in one of the inner rooms. He made the decision after not wanting his decapitated head as a trophy for his enemies. He called his young servant, Mori Renmaru, and instructed him to burn the temple so no one can get his head. Before committing seppuku, his last order was issued to Yasuke, telling him to keep his head from falling into enemy hands. Yasuke was distraught, but he could not stop fighting. He had to fulfill Oda's last request. Yasuke kept fighting until eventually he was surrounded by Akichi's troops. Oda Nobunaga's remains were never found. Yasuke is captured and presented to Akichi Matsuhide. Matsuhide was shocked that he did not commit seppuku, which was Japanese culture after defeat. Not knowing what to do with him, the general spares Yasuke's life, deeming him an animal and not a true samurai, so he should not be killed. Still tied up, he is taken to the Christian church in Kyoto, the Nanbanji, to be returned to the Jesuits, where he spent the rest of his days. History hasn't been too kind to Yasuke. The early years of his existence are lost, and historians can't seem to agree on the important details regarding his life. When was he born? What's the origin of his name? Where was he born? Some historians speculate Mozambique, Angola, or Ethiopia as his birthplace. Others believe he may have been a European-born slave from Portugal. One thing we can agree is the legacy that he left, which I will dwell into shortly, overshadows all of those important questions. A pure mystery from birth till now, it almost seems as if he was purposely placed into 16th century Japan. Japan was far from perfect at this time. Japan is experiencing internal division through the fight for control of provinces by the daimyos. For a while, Japan closed itself off to the outside world, practicing isolationism until the age of exploration, a global economic boom that brought European explorers from all over the world to Japan. The Portuguese were the first Europeans to settle on the island, bringing with them a new language, religion, and a new institution of slavery. Prying hundreds of slaves from their homeland of Africa and taking them across the globe to be sold for servitude. Yasuke managed to overcome racial barriers and a class system to rise through the ranks, eventually becoming a samurai and attaining a position of the highest honor in his new home. But this all starts in 1579. Yasuke arrives in Kyoto, Japan. As a bodyguard of the Jesuit missionary Alessandro Valenano, Valenano came to Japan to visit the Jesuit churches set up on the island. Yasuke's mere appearance created pandemonium in the city. People climbed over one another to get a glimpse of him, some people being crushed to death as a result of the antsy uproar. Frantic from all the newfound attention, he rushed to take refuge in the Jesuit church. People wanted to see him and be in his presence. He is the first African the city had ever seen, and he is nearly a foot taller than everyone else. Because the Buddha was often shown with black skin, the people saw him as a divine visitor. Word of the exotic dark man reached the daimyo, who is interested in the rumor of such a man. He requests for Yasuke. The daimyo met Yasuke at his temple, face to face. He is in awe of his height. 
The average Japanese man during this time is about 5 feet. Yasuke is 6'2". He is in awe of his build, but he does not believe that this is Yasuke's real skin color. So, he had Yasuke go shirtless and scrubbed on his arm repeatedly, wanting to know if the dark hue was real or just black ink. After several attempts, he was convinced this is Yasuke's real skin, and immediately threw a feast in his honor. Yasuke gained a new ally, Oda Nobunaga, the most powerful warlord in Japan. With knowledge of only a little Japanese, the two men bonded easier than what people would have thought. Oda was intrigued by his stories of travel in India and Africa, and he loved Yasuke's company. The warlord was convinced Yasuke should stay and join his forces. A couple days have passed since Yasuke's trip to Oda Nobunaga's temple. Oda Nobunaga has walked into the Kyoto church, looking for Alessandro Valinano. Once he found him, Oda respectfully asked Valinano to take Yasuke into his service. On that day, Yasuke became Nobunaga's weapon bearer and confidant over overseas matters. In just a few short months, Oda Nobunaga issues Yasuke a monthly stipend, a residence, and his own katana. The katana symbolizes the spirit of a samurai warrior, meaning Yasuke becomes the first documented non-Japanese samurai. He officially joined Oda's forces in 1581, leading Oda's troops in the invasion of the Iga province, a place where Oda's son failed to conquer two years earlier. With 40,000 to 60,000 troops, the province was unconquerable. In Yasuke's first military campaign under Oda, he was victorious. Treasuring this victory immensely, Yasuke and the troops decided to sing, dance, and drink the entire night away. Unfortunately, Yasuke's career as a samurai was short-lived. His second and last campaign under Oda was in June 1582, the day Oda's temple is being sieged. You may be wondering, what does this have to do with anything, and how does it relate in today's terms? Well, let me explain. When I was a summer camp counselor during my undergraduate years at the University of South Florida, I ran into many kids, all with big personalities, many coming from hard home situations, but that was the point of the camp, to provide a safe space for the kids, but also to provide the kids with the skills necessary to thrive in a society that has ultimately turned their back on them. Hillsborough County School District has the largest number of schools on the state's list of persistently low-performing schools. To understand what it means to be a persistently low-performing school, you have to receive a D or an F in at least three of the last five years that you were open. Campbell Park Elementary, Lakewood Elementary, and Fairmont Park Elementary were schools involved in our summer camp program. Still, every day, these kids came in smiling and full of optimism, a blissful ignorance though many of them have experienced more responsibilities than the average child. At the end of each summer, I made sure to ask as many students as I could what did they want to be when they were older, though I barely knew the answer to that question myself, and I was much older than they were. Seeing their little brown and white faces, many had dreams of becoming hairstylists, professional athletes, lawyers, doctors, animators, and many more. This made me smile from ear to ear, hearing the enthusiasm behind their answers and the smile they had while stating their dream. Their smiles were contagious, but more specifically, I was happy that there was a shift in consciousness of black children. This doesn't speak for every black child, but many black children born in low income or impoverished areas believe that there are only three ways to escape their environment and take care of their family, becoming a professional athlete, becoming a rapper, or becoming a dope dealer. There isn't any judgment for me when I say that because I understand Historically, these have been the best routes for success for black people in this country. 
though there are other ways to be successful through school, but that's a long-term investment. And many teachers in these impoverished environments don't feed the students appetite to learn, but instead hinder that ability by giving up on these kids or criticizing the kids when they are acting out desperately, crying out for attention. There are many reasons why black kids only see those options as the only way to get out. You can blame the environment. You can blame the teacher's lack of ability to break through to these children. I choose to blame society, a society that has normalized limiting these children to only three options. A society that furthers the stigma of a double-sided justice. It is a crime to sell drugs if you are black, but it's a business to sell drugs if you are white. This double standard has ruined many lives and has set the youth on a path to lawless living. This isn't me suggesting that you should go out and sell drugs. This is me confronting the double standard that is society. A society that criminalizes black people out of fear. Yasuke's story is important because it is a story of first for African Americans. He has been reborn as a character in computer games, anime, manga, comics, films, books, and theater. Japan's first black samurai. A title that doesn't hold much weight in today's life, but to a young black kid, this could mean the world. It gives the possibility that he can be anything he wants in the world, regardless of color. In 2008, Barack Obama broke barriers for a black child to believe if he works just hard enough, he too can someday be president of the United States. I can justly say that in some universal way that without Yasuke, Barack's story may have never been told. Thanks for taking the time out to listen to Fighting for Survival. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or TuneIn. Please don't forget to do this. Each review that you leave helps our podcast get even better. All comments and potential topic ideas you want me to cover are welcome. Make sure to follow our Twitter page at FightFSPodcast if you haven't already, where we will give a brief intro into the topic for the week. Stay tuned for next week's podcast, where we will talk about a crime committed by white supremacists that devastated an entire community and desecrated a holy sanctuary, the 16th Street Baptist Church building. See you next week, listeners.